0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Brian Babylon. I don't believe in Jesus, but I believe people in this bar might
1: need him, okay? So,
0: <laughs> that and more. But before that, postage rates have gone up again. Thankfully, Stamps.com can ease the pain with big discounts off postage retail rates. With Stamps.com, you save $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Stamps.com automatically calculates and prints the exact amount of postage you need for any letter or package you send. You never overpay or underpay. They bring all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package with your own computer and printer we've used stamps.com at risk and the story studio for many years now and it's just a no-brainer for us we love it they'll send you a free digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage they'll help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and that digital scale. So see for yourself why over 700,000 small businesses use Stamps.com. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Now, here's the show. Whoa, whoa! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the band behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Exposed. These are three very different stories from three very different live shows. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Eddie Brill you can find it eddybrill.com, a story that he shared actually years ago when risk was last in North Carolina but before that the return of an old favorite of ours this is the fourth time that Brian Babylon has been on the podcast Brian is based in Chicago. You can find him at brianbabylon.com. He told this one at our recent show in San Francisco when we were at San Francisco Sketchfest in January. Here he is now. This is Brian Babylon with a story we call Strange Education.
1: Bay Area, I need way more, and I don't need no Napa Valley energy. I flew all the way here just to hang out. I need some mission or whatever. I need more energy than that. Give it to me. There we go. Yoink. Well, unfortunately, we, we live in some tough, racist times, unfortunately. Sorry to bring you guys down from that energy level that we just had. <laughs> But we are. I'm sensitive as fuck over race now. Everything trips me out since Donald Trump became president. Everything is weird. I was uh, doing some shows throughout red state America. I think we were in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. Can't get more red state than that shit. Went to a gas station and a dude and a Make America Great hat again held the door open for me to come into a gas station. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> like, what kind of, if I go through these doors, am I going to a racist Narnia? What's gonna happen if I go through those doors? It's weird. I think the raciest, racist Narnia happened a month or so ago. Went to Nigeria, who were my buddies. Went to Africa for the first time as a black man. Went to Africa for the first time. And I almost got deported. It was fucking whack. I get there, the visa wasn't straight, they were trying to ship me back on the plane I came into back to Dubai. I was like, what the fuck is going on? I've never felt so Mexican in my life. It was weird. I was living here in San Fran in the mission for like a year and just went back to LA because I needed LA break. I was uh, hanging out with this chick. And, you know, I guess you people love dogs. I don't know what the fuck that's about. Whole, na- whole nother story, okay? But she had two Rhodesian Ridgebacks, African hounds. Now, that's not the racist part, okay? You can be white and still have African hounds. That's not the racist part. Here it is. <laughs> she was going to take her dogs for a walk, and she says, she said, Tariq, Levantes, come on, guys, let's go for a walk. I'm like, Tariq, Levantez? Those names sound black as fuck. What's going on? She sound like Chris Collinsworth on Monday Night Football saying them black names like that. It's weird. So I'm super sensitive about race. I was in my hometown of Chicago, Illinois, Shy town in the building. And I'm at an um, after-hours bar right that closes at 4.30. And this is one of those bars that I don't believe in Jesus, but I believe people in this bar might need them. Okay, so somebody in this bar might need a little, little J-dub in their life, right? Right? So I'm sitting at the bar, waiting for my friends to come, hanging out. And this guy, he staggers up to me, and he taps me on my shoulder, and he says, hey, 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 hey. I'm like, what's up? He's like, you know what? I'm like, What? Hey, did you know Jews run the media? Then he disappeared.
0: I'm like, what the fuck?
1: Where did that racist angel go? What the fuck was that? He just popped up. Jews run the media and drunkenly walked off. I'm like, what? That was weird as fuck. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whatever. I debunked that fact like three weeks later here in San Francisco. Okay? This is what happened. Uh, A little bit about me. I do medicinal ecstasy once a month, okay? <laughs> hey, entertainment business is tough. I don't have representation. It's hard on my little body, I do. You know, just keep the edge off. I do medicinal ecstasy once a month. I get it from this guy who's not in the medical profession. That's a moot point, but. go <laughs> back to the spot, 19th of Valencia. Where well, I'm staying at and my whole treatment is medicinal ecstasy, some old bond scotch, and a blunt, some weed, right? And then you lay on the couch and Calgon take me away. So that's how this treatment works. So a little thing, I can't do a full ecstasy pill. I can't do a full pill. My body can't take that. I can do a half C. Right? I can do a half one. So I do Three halfsies. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to get shit popping, right? Right? Three halfsies, Just to get shit in my bloodstream. Lay on the couch, smoke weed, drinking the scotch, treatment kicks in. And the remote is like on the coffee table and I'm too stuck to get it. So I'm like, hey, whatever the TV's on, it's gonna be on, right? So the TV was left on the History Channel okay the History Channel now let's rewind back to Jews running the media if Jews ran the media, whoever's in charge of that History Channel account is sleep at the wheel because all they show on the History Channel, I swear to you is shows about Nazis and Hitler all the fucking time it was crazy, I swear to you from midnight to 7 a.m to where i passed out on drugs i watched seven hours straight of hitler shows back to back to back to back to back to back it was fucking crazy the first one it was like hitler and his bunker you know how he had it laid out i'm like okay then it was like did hitler escape I'm like okay and then the next one was like uh hitler and his bitches a whole hour dedicated to Adolf Hitler and all his love interests and how they were killing themselves and shooting themselves because he was so charismatic. Like, why do not even know that shit about him, right? So then, the next one was uh, Hitler and the Occult. Right? A whole hour dedicated to Adolf Hitler and his fascination with amulets, Ark of the Covenants, all that shit. I'm like, oh, right, Indiana Jones, that was Hitler. Damn, okay. Right. Wow. It's coming together fifth hour Hitler and his health problems a whole hour dedicated to Hitler and his doctor and a lot of people don't know this because they don't teach us in the high schools these days Hitler had a very bad fart problem people don't know that about him very farty dude right just dumbass mustache farting around goose stepping fucking up Europe people don't talk about that very bad fart problem and he was on meth, just a, just a little, facts. Had a little meth problem. Energy, farting, and ruining Europe, Hitler, okay? Six hour, it was like, Hitler, 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 just a recap of his whole shit. And then the last one, the last show, this is creeping suns coming up. The last show I watched is called Hitler and his accomplishments. And I'm like, what the fuck
2: is going on here?
1: And it was weird, like the announcer would come on and he would say shit like, Hey, did you know without Hitler we wouldn't have expressways today? Because he made the Autobahn like, damn, it is pretty young, pretty <laughs> good." Then he came back, and would like, say, Hey, did you know without Hitler we wouldn't have Volkswagen cars? I'm like, What? No perfect Nugan, that's fucking crazy. Wow. <laughs> and then he came back, he was like, Hey, did you know? Without Hitler, we wouldn't have Casio keyboards. I'm like, what the fuck? Then I passed out. That <laughs> was too much. Next morning, I woke up. A sponge dripping of Hitler information. Okay? I swear to you, I know more about Adolf Hitler than no Barack Obama. Okay? That's, I know the ins and outs of this dude, Okay? I will fuck up a standardized test on Hitler information, okay? Like, I would ruin a bell curve on a Hitler test. Don't fuck with me on that, all right? So later that evening, I go to an intimate dinner party. And, um... You know, people are chatting, drinking, smoking, hanging out, eating cheese and white people shit. And, um... And of course, he who shall be named, his name came up, Donald Trump. And of course, everyone was like, ooh, boo, Donald Trump, ah, And there's one girl, she's like, oh my God, I hate Donald Trump. He's worse than Hitler. And I was like, well, bitch, I don't know about worse. <laughs> Slow the fuck down, I don't know about worse. You're saying a lot of shit right now, okay? Did you know, without Hitler, We wouldn't have expressways, bitch. Did you know that, okay? It would take you three hours to get here, okay? You hating right now. Did you know without Hitler, we wouldn't have Volkswagens, okay? Did you know that? Did you know without Hitler, we wouldn't have Casio keyboards, bitch? What would Stevie Wonder do? Did you know that? (laughs) And right when I said that last one, I was like, oh shit. Am I turning into a Nazi synthesizer? <laughs> now, I'm going to be totally honest with you. There's a few little goals I have in comedy life, all right? But one of my goals is during Black History Month on the History Channel, you're going to turn on the TV and the announcers are going to say, hey, did you know? A black man has the best Hitler joke of all time. <laughs> hey, guys, thank you very much. Mwah. Peace out. Hey, 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 well, wow, oh, Right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, right, What? Oh. wow. You're right, you're right, you're right. So, what the fuck? Oh, wow. What the fuck is going on here? What the fuck is going on? Weird, weird. Weird. What's going on? Why are we doing this? You know, we don't we don't know. Whoa, what oh, what oh, what? Oh, but never. No. Wow. What? Wow. Wow. Oh yeah. Great shit. Wow. What the fuck is this? No one told me. Wow. Oh my.
3: To all of you, I'm going to tell you a story. I've never told people. Um, I've told a couple, but uh, the first time I'm telling it on stage. And my story starts in 1998, uh, the turn of the century. It was an interesting year because a year before that, my sister died. And my sister was only 34. And she, the love of my life, and very, very close. But also the year before, I started working at Letterman. Louis C.K., uh, worked at Letterman and I also had worked on the Dana Carvey show with Louie and Louie they were looking for a new warm-up comedian and I got to do it. Now by 1998, even though there was pain and turmoil of losing my sister, there was an excitement in my life and I can put myself into something deep like working at the Letterman show because now I was in the sort of circle with Letterman. After a year working there, I got to go in every commercial break up to the desk with him bullshit with him, tell stories, think about what we're going to do, who the next guest is, and I got to be there. So it was exciting. Plus, we only worked four days a week, so I still got to be a stand-up and travel the world, so it was exciting. And everything was going beautifully. Then I got a phone call. <laughs> Hello? It was this woman, Jennifer, who was my sister's friend, and I figured, why would she call me? She called, you know, she was my sister's great friend and probably wanted to talk about my sister. She, I hadn't spoken to her since my sister Jody had passed. And it was a small talk, how you doing, things are good, whatever, and then she said, you have a son. Exactly. (laughs) What? We have a son. Uh Huh? Huh? (laughs) He's 11. Huh? (laughs) Um, I think I got a call on the other line. I, I checked the ID, it was denial took the call. (laughs) I stood there going, what the fuck? Now, here's the interesting thing. I thought I was done with children. I've had a lot of tragedy in my life, like all of us have had, but a lot of debts. My stepfather was the greatest guy, died at 37. When I was 15, he got cancer. We had five children in our family. I was the oldest. I raised all the kids. My little brother was born and my I got cancer, so I'm the only father my little brother knows. And so my whole life I've been a parent, my whole childhood I was a parent, and now I was gonna be a real parent I think, or maybe, or why is she lying, and why would she call me? And I was freaking out, I didn't want this, I wanted to travel the world, I was done being a parent. And the subconscious mind is quite a monster because as much as I wanted to deny it, it was feeding me all the time. I couldn't deny it. I would see things. There were a lot of movies out in 1998. Father finds son, son finds father. Father turns into son as a ghost. I don't know if you remember some of those films. Son turns into father. And then I would see kids playing in the park and I didn't have that good of a relationship with my own dad. And then I remember David Letterman had a son, and I asked him, I said, what was it like when you had a son? He said, it was like someone turned a light on, and this love came, and it was like, wow, this is kind of interesting. So I went to visit my mom, who lived in Florida. I was in New York. My mom's my best friend in the world, and unfortunately, we lost her two months ago. Um, I know but I call her still every day and talk to her uh, and she answers she's out of her fucking mind uh, no she's the greatest and I she's my best friend so I said look you're the first person I'm telling I think I have a son and she's like, Woo! she was so excited because she thought I'd never give her a grandchild that I'm not gonna fucking get married or have her have sex no I didn't <laughs> say that I didn't think I would do that because I was done with all that but she said it's different it's your son You have to know, you have to find out. And all these signs were there. You know, some subtle, some neon. You know, I like that line, so I stood on it for a little extra. And a couple of people made an audible noise, and that made my whole night, whether the story sucks (laughs) or not. I told my mom, I only had sex with this person once. She goes, that's all it takes. Okay. So now you know. Uh, (laughs) How we met Jennifer and I, my father had an electronics store and at the beginning of my career I was working during the day for him, my sister was, and this girl Jennifer worked down the street and she would come down the street and we visited and my sister and her had a lot in common, they became friends. Well one night I get a phone call, my sister had a a baby of her own in 1986 and she had come over her house and got very drunk and having fun, but my sister's baby was very little and she lived two buildings over from me. And my brother-in-law called me and said, you know Jennifer, Jody's friend? Yes. Well, she lives two hours north, and she's very drunk, and she wants to drive home, and I don't want her crashing here with the baby. And I have a futon. And I said, sure, let's put her on the futon, and we carried her, literally carried her, two doors down. And she passed right out and snored. So I put on headphones and watched the movie. And then I went to bed, about five, like a comedian. And... I woke up at 8 in the morning, and I was having sex. Yeah. I like how there's a few people who know some shit that have been through it. Like, you've been through that. You can tell. Yeah. If you've never had sex to wake up, I recommend it. I didn't stop it. I loved it. It was fantastic. And that one time made a baby. Then... She went back home, up to Newburgh, New York, a couple of hours north, and I didn't see her for a long, long time. All of a sudden, I was like, shit, after this phone call, like, well, i got to find out what happened. He's 11. Why is she telling me now? He was 12 now when I contacted her, and she said what happened was she was dating a man, and he was Puerto Rican gentleman, and they were very happy and together, and she got pregnant, and she figured it was his. I guess she cheated on him once early one morning in uh, the East Village of Manhattan and she thought it was his baby and he wasn't interested and he took off and then she met a man who really loved her and said, I'll have this baby with you and they had the baby and he was white, he wasn't Puerto Rican, even a little bit. She said, shit, whose baby is this? Now I'm sure the guy was like, who the fuck did I marry? Whose baby is this? But there had to be some questions. So, She told me she finally found a diary recently, and in it, it was the date that I was in New York that she was hanging out, and she remembered it had to be me, you know. So my heart was racing, and and I said, what did you do? And she said, I saw that I had this beautiful boy, By the time I realized it was yours, my husband loved him, and he loved my husband. Then I had a girl, and they were really tight, and you were traveling the world. I didn't want to put that on you. Okay? You know, I don't blame her. You know, here's the thing. I love Jennifer. She is great. We don't hang out much, but she's lovely. She raised my son beautifully. Her and Milton, her husband, raised him beautifully. He's a phenomenal kid. I trust him. I love him. He's an amazing boy, and I'm thankful for her for that, but... He got a little older and wanted to know why he didn't look like Milton. So he asked his mom, who's my real father? So <laughs> she found an 8 by 10 of me and said, here's your dad. <laughs> now he probably freaked out, because I would have freaked out if you would have seen my 8 by 10 in 1998. I had like a sweater with a collared shirt and big puffy 80s hair and really bad caps. That was my son. I would like, say, Mom, do you have any other 8 by 10s I can look at for my father to get the choice there? Now, my dad wasn't there when I was growing up, and I thought about that. He was a very young man, and my mom, they were both 18, 19 when I got married, 20 when I was born, and he wasn't there. And Daniel wanted to meet me. So I remembered my father. When I wanted to become a comedian, he called me a pussy. He said, that's not a job for a man. But luckily, I didn't grow up with him. I grew up with a fantastic guy, my stepfather, who really taught me about love and respect. But my father was that kind of, you know, you're a pussy for doing the fucking thing. The only time he came to see me perform is when I was at the beginning, when I sucked. And when I knew he was in the audience, I sucked worse because I was scared shitless. And I was talking like, "Eh," I was like like the Bee Gees in the 80s. It sounded like when I was, and anyway, how can you mend a broken man? That was what my cassettes used to sound like. And the only person laughing was him because I sucked so bad. So I heard him laughing, but I knew he was mocking me. So one night, I was in Long Island doing a comedy club, a million years later, and I had a decent set. I get off stage, and there's my father in the back of the room, and he's crying. Because that was the first time he really saw me. His friends had said, Your son's pretty good at this. So he was crying. He couldn't believe that I was really good at my job. So he went out into the car and made beautiful love. And no, I'm just kidding. It was just too easy. <laughs> Some people were taken aback by that. It was a joke that came there. I only made that up. It's not on the paper at all, I promise. Wouldn't that have been fucked up still? Good night! <laughs> and made love and, and that's why I'm fucked up and a good comedian. No, we sat there and he apologized for doubting me and we became really close and he got very sick, of course. <laughs> like everyone in my family, and died. But before he died, he would come with stuff in his arms. When he had diabetes, he would come to see me perform. When I did Letterman as a guest, he would climb to the back, whatever it took, and we became close. So I have to meet my son, and I'm not going to let him have the shitty background that I had with my dad. So the only day he can come, I was doing a comedy show in Bryant Park in New York City. And what a killer show. David Tell, Louis Black, Judy Gold, Greg Giraldo, and it was great, and I'm hosting, and my son's going to be in the audience, and I'm going to meet him for the first time, and I was never so nervous in my life, I wanted him to think I didn't suck, you know what I mean, you know what I mean, I just like, I'm going to do my jokes, and I got to get out of my head, because I want him to, you know, he might not like me, but at least he'll think I'm funny, fuck that guy, but great comedian, you know, so... I do the show, and it was fantastic, and all the comics were great, and we we're outdoors, and we're supposed to be clean, but Louis Black, ah, fucking, fuck this, and David tells her, "I'm fucking her up the ass with a dirty stick," and you know, the audience, people in the audience, going, Oh, let's cancel the show." Um, after the show, I'm waiting, and she walks up, Jennifer, and there's this little boy, and I see him, and my heart melted. There was little me, and I fell in love immediately with this little, beautiful, nervous, thin, tiny little boy with my big nose and <laughs> same exact nose, same eyes. It was just so nice. So we started walking and talking and he was very quiet because he was very shy and, and I was very shy and the way I'm shy is I don't shut up because I figure, don't let a word get in edgewise. And I'm saying, oh, what a- I'm so sorry, I wish I was there and Milton is your real dad and all this. And, And we just, we got along. We laughed because we knew we were nervous. We got closer, we got closer. And it was really, really, really nice. My family met him. The only thing I regret is that my real father and that my sister never got to meet my son because they would have loved him, he would have loved them. But then all of a sudden, you know, he became 21 years old. I looked at his MySpace page. That's how old this story is. (laughs) And I noticed that he loved all the same bands The Who, Elvis Costello, The Beatles It's like, how does this little person And it's just, DNA doesn't fucking bullshit You know, I love hockey He loved hockey, except he liked the devils Fuck the devils, you know (laughs) So on his 21st birthday Now he's a musician and he's an actor And uh, you know, it's me too (laughs) I'm a musician, an actor Of course he's that so he wants to move to LA to become an actor. And I see now on his Facebook page that he's gonna do stand-up comedy at the Comedy Store. So I call him up, oh, that's fantastic, why didn't you tell me? He goes, I didn't want to tell you because I wanted to do it first. Ever since I met you and I knew you are a comedian, I, I want to be a comedian like you. Oh God, it's so good. And I said, but it's on Facebook. Five billion people can read it and I read it. So I sent some of my friends down and they saw him. And they said, your son's funny. Funnier than you, motherfucker. That's the kind of friends I have. That's the friends you want. The ones that are going to give you shit. He was really funny. And he's been doing it for years and years and years. He's been at it. He's 29 now. We work together a lot. In a couple of weeks, we're in Chicago working at Zany's together. We work in San Diego. He just filmed a comedy special for television. He's doing really, really well. I'm so proud of him. He's so great. He's my boy. And just a couple of weeks ago, I got a text. And said, I love you very much. Because people, by the way, this generation does not call you to tell you they love you. It's text or Snapchat or where goes away in five seconds. He texted me, I love you very much, and I'm proud that you're my father. And I'm the luckiest son of a bitch on the planet. Thank you very much.
0: This is Risk, this is Cheryl Crow behind me now, and we... J- well, I, uh, it's a cover. I don't know if you noticed it's a cover. <laughs> and we just heard from Eddie Brill, who you can find at eddiebrill.com. Before that, we heard a little interstitial of Brian Babylonian noises <laughs> made by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Our final story comes to us from someone who is very dear to our heart here at Risk, Jenna Brister. You know, when the Story Studio was just starting out, our sister company where we teach people storytelling, Jenna took one of our very first classes. That was many years ago. And since then, she has appeared and told hilarious stories at our live show and on the podcast in both New York and Los Angeles. But just a month ago, in Los Angeles... Jenna shared a very different sort of story with us, and it was really remarkable to hear her being so honest. This is a story about an abusive relationship. So here is Jenna Brister now at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a story we call Newlywed and Afraid.
4: I met the man that I was going to marry at my 29th birthday party. I did a storytelling show, kind of like this. I invited all my friends out to one place on the town, so thank you for being here. We went to the bar next door on Sunset Boulevard, and we're partying, and all of a sudden this tall Venezuelan man, a friend of a friend, comes over and wishes me a feliz cumpleaños. And we, our eyes locked in this love laser, and he was so charming and so fun. And we ended my birthday making out in the back of his friend's convertible under the stars. And I was like, this is so L.A. So we fell in love really fast. And on the third week of our romance, I proposed that we move in together. And he said yes. And then in week 12 of our romance, he proposed holy matrimony. And I said yes. And so we decided to get married, and we told our families, they were pumped. I met his mom on Skype, and she spoke only Espanol. And I took cuatro años en escuela. And so I like could understand some of it. So when she told me that I was muy bonita, I was like, everything's gonna be fine, This doesn't work out perfect. And so we ran off to Vegas, which if you've ever gotten married in Vegas, it is very fun. I got there and I instantly had to have a bachelorette party. And so uh, my very pregnant sister and then his pregnant best girlfriend and my non-drinking mom go to the Silverton Casino for the live mermaid show. So I'm sitting there drinking alone, surrounded by mermaids and unborn children. And I was like, this is so Las Vegas. Yes. This has to be a good omen. So we got married at the Little White Chapel in front of a Dolly Parton impersonator. And I was like, all right, this is the perfect kickoff to the summer of love. So we get back and we move into a house in Silver Lake. And like two days in, he quits his job. And he's like, I'm done. I'm tired of working. And I was like, okay, cool. And so I got a second nanny job. So I had two full-time nanny jobs to pick up the slack because I figured like, I'm married now. That's what you do, right? That's what you do as a wife. You help out. Then about five days in, He said something that kind of struck me as odd. He was teaching me how to properly make a quesadilla, because he was a chef, so he knew. And I burnt one really bad. And he looked at me and was like, you're fucking worthless. Like, you're so lucky that I love you because nobody else ever would. And I was like, okay, like a little aggressive, but, you know, it's just a quesadilla. But then... The man that I married in Las Vegas rapidly deteriorated into someone I did not recognize. He controlled what I wore and what I didn't wear, who I saw, who I couldn't see. If I wore this sweater, I would be called a slut because you weren't allowed to show your shoulders now that you were married. At first, all this stuff did strike me as odd. I was like, okay, but I mean, I'm married. Is this how it's supposed to go? And uh, he insisted on driving me everywhere, which I thought was really charming. I was like, oh, he just wants to hang out with me. No, he just wants to make sure he knows where I am at all times. My family lives in a different state, so I'd usually use the times that I was driving around to talk to my family. But now that I was with him, it was different. I couldn't just hop on the call and like gab with my sister and be like, oh my God, being married, right? Uh." But I wanted to do that because I was like, this is tough. Like, this is so far not so good one day I came home, and he was going through all of my journals. Now, I kept a bunch of journals. I I do stand-up comedy, so I started writing, like, stupid shit, you know, stuff like you would never talk about on stage, but I kept, like, very, very accurate journals about what I was doing, who I was dating, what was going on in my life, all that, and he was going through them, and then he would use stories from my past to accuse me of having emotional affairs or real affairs, and I was, like, Look at the date. That is from 2004. That is not now. But he was just looking for ammo. But I, I hung onto these journals. I, I moved across the country a couple of times, and I would always lug these with me because they're what make me me. And like, if you are an adult journaler, you know like, this is what makes you you. Uh, and I had no dreams of ever being like the next Dan Frank. That was not my plan to have anyone <laughs> read this or make it more than what it is. It's just a journal. But now it was used as something else. He told me that all of my writing was causing him emotional pain and that I needed to get rid of it. And I was like, I'm so sorry. You're right, I'm, I'm sorry. And I, I put all my journals in a suitcase and I snuck out of the house and I went to a friend's house down the street. And it's the same friend that introduced us. And she had a, a fire pit. And I was like, hey, uh, I need you to burn all this stuff. And she was like, why? And I was like, I can't tell you why. Because I was embarrassed. It's embarrassing to be like, my marriage sucks. But uh, she was like, I, I don't think you should. That's like 15 notebooks full of stuff. And I was like, okay, just, just keep it here. And if I text you to burn it, will you do it? And she was like, yeah, okay. So she stashed it under her bed and I went home. And most of our fights were when we were. it was just us. Either we were in the house and it was just screaming constantly or in the car It was usually about stuff that, you know, I wasn't going to take his last name, that I wasn't a real woman, that I was a whore, that I was fat and shitty and worthless. Like, just a barrage of verbal insults I had never experienced before. I didn't. Uh, I have a really great dad. Thank you, Jim Brister. But it it was a lot, and we were fighting so much that the first month of being married, we got in three car accidents. He was always driving, and all three were on the passenger side. And the first two were like, okay... Fool me twice, I should probably get an Uber. Uh, But then (laughs) on the third one, I was like, oh, this guy's like trying to hurt me. So I thought, okay, maybe we just need to get out of town. Maybe that's it. We just get out of town. And so we drove up to Seattle to see my family. And he... Cooked a dinner for 20 of my family members, and it was this like Jekyll and Hyde show because it was when one were other people, it was fine, but he had this very like plastered on smile, singing my praises, you know, charming the whole fam. And I was sitting there just like, just relieved to not be being yelled at. It was really nice to not have his drama. Then everyone took off, and uh, we were cleaning up, and he starts yelling at me again, just telling me that I was a whore. And I was like... Oh my God. So I went upstairs to go to bed. And we're staying in my aunt's old house. Like this big empty house in the woods, like fucking the haunting of Hill House. Like you shouldn't be there alone with a crazy person. So I go upstairs and I'm brushing my teeth and I hear footsteps creaking up the stairs. He comes into the bathroom and he has his hands behind his back. And he comes around beside me and then the cover of his butcher knife falls on the floor. I like froze. And I just thought, like, oh, my God, this is how I die. This is it. And he pulls the knife out, and I start crying because I'm just thinking, like, oh, my God, who in my family is going to find me? As I'm crying, he pulls the knife over, and he puts it against his own arm. And then he said, I'm going to kill myself for being so mean to you. And I was like, what the fuck is even happening? And, like, the level of confusion this was, was beyond anything I'd experienced before. And so I cried and begged him not to. I was like, please don't kill yourself. Um, Because she had just sold the house, by the way. And I was like, that's why we're staying here because she was like vacated. And I was like, this would be bad for the family. And so, and I begged him to not do it. And then he he manipulated me to the point where I was apologizing for making him feel so bad, for wanting to kill himself or making him feel like a bad husband. But it was all I could do because there was a knife out and we just, he dropped the knife and we both just collapsed crying. But it wasn't that mutual crying, you know, when you're with your partner and you're like, we're gonna get through this crying. It was this like, holy fuck, what did I get myself into crying? And when I got back to town, I was at one of my nanny jobs and I had a minute alone. So I Googled, what is an abusive relationship? Because I didn't know. And this was the only thing I could turn to that wasn't embarrassing. And the top article said, hey, here's the top 10 signs you're in an abusive relationship. So I click on it. And I took the quiz and I had 9 out of 10. And I was like, fuck. I mean, it was good that I had a word for it because I didn't know the A word prior to this. I was like, okay, that's what this is. It sucks. But at least I know what it is because I didn't know before. And the profile of an abusive partner was like, all the things that I experienced, like controls your finances, controls where you go, insists on driving you places, insults you, makes you feel guilty and so that you're apologizing, isolates you from friends and family. It was like just everything. So I knew I had to get out and but by this time... I had gained so much weight because I know the idea of having a live-in chef sounded great at the start. I was like, oh, this is perfect. No, guys, it was really bad. It, it, like, it was great food, but then I, I was being woken up in the middle of the night and he was like, I need you to eat this food. And I was like, I'm not hungry. And he, he would start crying and throw a tantrum and be like, if you don't eat this, you don't love me. And I was like, fuck And so I'm just eating like nice food. And which sounds like it's torture, right? No, it was, it was. But anytime I didn't want to eat anything, he would scream at me and use it as a tool to take over. And so I was like, I'm going for a run. And so I went down to the Silver Lake Reservoir and I couldn't run. And I just sat on the meadow and I remember feeling so numb. And I was like, I don't love this person. Like everything he's done to kill my self-esteem has also killed any affection I had for him. And I knew I had to get out. So I took the long way home, just not, I have no idea, because when you live with someone and share a bed with them and a life, it's not easy to get out, it's extremely hard. So I took the long way home and I get home and my cat Dante had climbed up on a neighbor's balcony and he had retrieved him. And so he's carrying my little cat and I walk up, and he starts twisting Dante's body. And I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Like, stop. And he was like, "He did stop." And I was like, "Just don't hurt the cat," because at that point, he hadn't touched the cat. And then he holds out his body. Oh, I hate talking about this. And drags him along a stucco wall. And so I lunge, and I hit Dante out of his arms. And the cat ran away, and I ran inside. And he just started screaming at me, and was following me around the house berating me, the usual shit, just all the insults coming at me. But at this point, it didn't even matter. I had no self-esteem at that point. And I got in bed, and I just laid there. And he was screaming at me for so long, I watched the sunrise from our bedroom window. And I I remember looking out and being like, oh my God, I have to go to fucking Groundlings improv class in three hours. (laughs) The idea of playing pretend with other adults sounded like a nightmare, because that's what I was doing all the time. The last time I saw him, I was out to dinner with two of my closest friends, and he showed up unannounced. They didn't clock that as weird, because he was my husband. But I was like, oh god, I was looking forward to one night of normalcy, of maybe laughing. I hadn't done that in a long time. And if I got brave enough, maybe telling him that things weren't going so hot. So we showed up, and uh, as we're walking into the restaurant, I'm following my friends in, and they go through the door, and he turns around, and he just screams, fuck off, and slams the door in my face. So I'm outside the restaurant, like, okay, ugh. Because usually the stuff was always in private. Usually it was always when we we're at home alone or in the car. But now he's doing it outside. So I go in and sit at the table, and throughout dinner, he's pinching the inside of my leg and like twisting my thigh, and I, I was like, fuck, like it's never gotten physical, He came here obviously with a intent to hurt me. We make it through dinner. I paid because I have two jobs. And I sign my name on the receipt, and he grabs the pen and scratches out my name and is like, You're not a fucking woman. If you were, you would have taken my last name. And I was like, Oh my god. Okay. Like my friends are here. I don't want to make a scene. Let's just get out of here. And so I get up to go to the bathroom and he follows me. And he grabs me and he slams me against the wall. And he apologizes. He says, I'm sorry I'm being so aggressive. I'm sorry. Also, you're a fucking whore. And I was like, oh my god, this fucking guy. And so I hug my friends goodbye. We're walking to our cars, intense silence, and he's parallel parked in front of me. I get in the car, and I don't even have time to buckle my seatbelt or like, think of something when I see his two white reverse lights slam into my front hood. And then he flips the U-turn and glares at me, and we lock eyes as he drives away, and the strangest feeling came over me, and it was a relief. I was alive. It wasn't hard enough to hurt me, but finally I had evidence. You know, my hood was dented because that's the problem with like verbal, mental, emotional abuse is that there's no evidence. You can't be like, oh, look at these handprints. Like there's, there's no real evidence to show, but I had some, you know, and so I, I ran into my friend's house and I told them everything. I was like, this is what's going on. And they were so incredible. And they looked at me and they were like, you never have to see this guy again. And I was like, uh, guys, I live with him. My cat's there. All my shit's there. We're married. And they're like, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You don't have to see him again. You never have to see him again he called and threatened to kill me if I didn't come home. And then he started sending pictures of knives and saying he was going to kill himself and that I would have to deal with the body. And so I called the cops and I said, you got to go to my house. Like my husband has knives. He's starting to kill me and him. And the cops went to the house. When uh, I called them back to find out what happened, they said, oh, he told us you guys are newlyweds and that you guys just got in a fight. So he just wants you to come home so that he can apologize. I was like, Wow. Okay. And so I I drove to the station and I I told them the same story about what was going on and they were like, I mean, you guys are newlyweds. You you should just go home and just talk to him. I'm sure you guys can work it out. So I'm never surprised when you see those articles online about domestic abuse victims who report it to the police and then they end up dead because the cops don't do anything. So I was still scared and needed to get my stuff, and um, I called my parents, which was the hardest part of all this uh, because two months ago they were at the wedding, and now here we are, and I knew I had to get everything out, and my dad and brother flew down. And so the next morning, eight of my friends and my dad and brother all met at my place when I knew that he wasn't going to be there. And I called the precinct again and I was like, can you just send a police escort? I didn't say why. I was like, "Just can you just send an officer with a firearm to my house? I'm moving out. And sure enough, Officer Gutierrez showed up. And as everyone's rapid fire, moving all my stuff out into a haul I explained to him what was going on. I showed him his passport photo. I told him everything that was going on. He was like, oh, this is this is the exact profile of a domestic abuser. He's like, you're lucky to get out this fast because usually we're getting these types of stories from a hospital bed. I was like, yeah, because your fucking colleagues don't know what they're doing. Wait, so this guy doesn't know that you're moving out right now? I was like, no, no, we're on the clock. I got two hours. And so we called for backup and three more officers showed up at the house just waiting there in case he came back. He didn't and we moved me out and um, I was relieved to be safe from it, but... The endless tide of, I told you so, you should have seen it coming, were way too much to bear. You know, how long did you guys date? And to anyone who said that to me or to someone else in a similar situation, this is why you're part of the bigger problem. This is why that's wrong to say and to think. It's because it acts as if I'm somehow responsible for his actions and that because of my negligence, I deserve this abuse. When really... It's not my responsibility to be not abused by my husband. It's his responsibility to not be abusive to his wife. And it's true. Shift the blame. So I went to get a divorce. I got the paperwork downtown and I stopped at the restraining order office just to see if I could get a twofer. And <laughs> I filled out the paperwork, all this stuff, and I was rejected for getting a, a restraining order because I didn't have a, a bruise on my body. And I, on my way out, the woman pulled me aside, the head of it, and she's like, I read your report. This guy's going to come after you. And I was like, yeah, no shit. That's why I'm here. She said, you really have to be careful. You either need to move or like get him out of the country somehow. The family I was nannying for uh, were out of town. My boss was shooting A fall in Our Stars, so she let me move into her house, which was great. Finally, I woke up, and no one was yelling at me, and I read books on abuse, and I painted shitty paintings I would eventually just throw in the garbage. And <laughs> they were not cute. And I learned that the type of abuser that he was, and in the psych biz, uh, it's called a drill sergeant, that 90% of people who are able to get away from their abuser are killed within the first year. And it was week one, and I was like, oh man. That was nine out of 10, again. So I had a greater chance of Bob Barker telling me to come on down on The Price is Right than I did of surviving my first year away from this abusive partner. And as of today, it's been five and a half years So I got a new place and my girlfriend brought over that suitcase full of journals. I would totally forgot about it and all the mess. And it felt like I was just handed my most prized possession. It was all this stuff that had made me the person I was, which was now a 29-year-old divorcee. But I loved that person. I love her, I love her. I love everything she's been through and I love everything she wrote and everything she stands for. And I can't believe I was so close to having that destroyed. But the truth is like I was that close to being destroyed. Thank you.
2: Won't be long till she's feeling like I fell What spreads real fast in this town you yeah, what gets around I don't give a damn where you're at
0: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Ruby Boots behind me now. And we just heard from Jenna Brister, who you can find at jennabrister.com. So happy to hear she made it through all that. Now, remember, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You can pitch us your stories. I just recorded a radio-style story with someone in Newcastle, England, just today, in between recording these these hosting segments for this episode. And it was absolutely gorgeous, a beautiful story. You might be in Newcastle, England, or you might be in Seoul, South Korea, or you might be in Buenos Aires, or wherever you are. You should go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. And there's all sorts of helpful tips on how to pitches and how to even begin putting a story together. That's at risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, here's where we're coming next. On February 28th, we are at Caveat in New York City. February 28th, we are back in New York at Caveat. On March 2nd, we're in Indianapolis for the very first time. Come on out, Indianapolis. We're at the Basil Theater at the Historic Athenaeum. On March 15th. <laughs> We're in Milwaukee. We return to Milwaukee on March 15th. We are still taking pitches for that show. On March 16th, we are in Madison, Wisconsin at High Noon Saloon. Still taking pictures for that one, too. On March 16th, we are also in Los Angeles, back at the Bootleg Theater. And on March 28th, back at Caveat in New York. On March 29th, we are in Salt Lake City. Still taking pictures for that one. April 12th, Richmond, Virginia. Still taking pictures for that one. So, remember risk-show.com slash submissions that's where you can pitch us your stories and don't forget if you want to learn more about storytelling we do one-on-one training sometimes over Skype sometimes in person we do in-person workshops we have video workshops that you can download and take in your own time and we do corporate workshops in storytelling at thestorystudio.org folks today's the day take a risk